Next up, um, we have Dr. Conrad Bayers. Dr. Bayers is, is the appointed absolute chair in actuarial science at the University of Pretoria. He's a CRA and holds a PhD in mathematics from the University of Pretoria. Conrad is part of an interdisciplinary group of academics and practitioners that work on research questions specifically focused on systemic risk, stress testing, sovereign credit ratings, financial regulation, as well as financial applications of data science. An overarching theme of research and development of early warning systems that adds value for the financial industry regulators, both in South Africa and the wider South African context, or wider African context, rather. Conrad, we look forward to your presentation. Would you please uh, join us on stage? Uh, thanks, Richard. I see you guys left me with an Apple computer, so I hope everything doesn't work the other way around. Um, yes, my talk is about systemic risk and early warning systems. I see on the program the title is slightly changed, but it's basically the, the same idea. And my first disclaimer, I have, I have more disclaimers. My first disclaimer is that I don't know how to model systemic risk and how to predict financial crises. Um, and my students, I see some of our students and collabor collaborators are here. The interesting part, at least, is nobody else also know how to do that. Decisions are being made every day, major decisions, using bad models or no models at all. And what we are busy doing is developing a number of approaches Looking at existing research, this is a fast-growing area in research. Um, developing approaches that might help us to understand the question better, and we had some successes, one of them which I will uh, display today. Okay, quick disclaimer. Um, ASA gave me this long contract. For, it seems that this will be shared worldwide, and um, so I rely on the fair use of material. I did use some stuff from Google and cite it as far as I could. Um, I will take it off if, if there's any problem. Um, and yes, I'm appointed as the APSA chair, but I'm not representing any views of APSA in any way. APSA is supporting this research, and, um, but this is not their viewpoint. Okay, this is a standing slide in all my presentations. I don't understand still here. Actuaries are in the business of the future. And I think I don't need to explain too much. The future ain't what it, what it used to be. Yogi Berra's statement. Um, things are bigger, faster, more complex. We don't even, are not even sure anymore what is true and what is not true when you look at um, information. Future, our business that we are in, ain't what it used to be. And also, even before I start to, to, to tell you what I will talk about, what we are talking about when thinking about systemic risk, risk to the system, a financial system in a whole country or even wider, um, is basically a question of how safe is your money? Not in the sense of how safe is your investments for retiring comfortably, it's how safe is that thing that you think you have? Um, the money itself. And we need to ask ourselves this question, why, what is money? Why is money valuable? And this is at the core of systemic risk. What are these things? A green piece of paper, there's no real worth, it's worth nothing. Metal, a number in a bank account, in, on some computer, there's no real value to those things. Why does it have value? 
now with new developments as well. And the basic argument here is, if, we, if one looks at how money developed, we cannot go through all the history now, but a medium of exchange only has value and as much value as people believe it has. It is not much more than shared trust. And that is at the core of systemic risk. If trust is lost, if you don't believe that that green note will be able to buy you something, you will not accept it for, in return for your goods or services. It's about trust, shared trust in a community of users of that currency. Okay, so briefly, overview. I'll give a not that brief uh, background of systemic risk. Um, and I'll, in this first section, I'll shoot a little bit from the hip. Um, Mark touched on some of these points, and maybe we will have to argue about some of these things. Um, but then I will go a little, a little bit more in some approaches that we are looking at, and that is looked at um, in the literature, about how one might approach this problem of systemic risk modeling. And I'll give an illustration of an actual kind of a success story, uh, uh, quite a, a, a good result that we saw that there might be some ways to obtain models with predictable, uh, pr pr uh, predictive power. Okay, so I'll quickly go through some technical stuff and talk briefly about the future. Of course, we are collaborators, we want to collaborate, and we are always keen as a university to provide um, collaborators with the uh, with, uh, um, opportunity to invest funding and make use of the um, gratuitous tax breaks that comes with funding for R&D. 150%, it's, it's amazing. Okay, it's true. Um, okay. So there's a long history of a loss of trust. I just show four here. Um, some notable ones, this first one. Um, the history of how the Central Bank of Sweden started um, and um, came into being was through a bank run, the Stockholm Banco. There was a, a spectacular uh, crash when the bank started, was the first bank to print bank notes. Printed too much, loss of trust in the currency, and it had to be saved, and that transformed into that what is currently the central bank in Sweden. Similarly, the 1907 bank panic in the United States, one can, there's a lot of uh, information about that on the internet. Um, started in New York, spread to um, the whole of the United States, and in the end, uh, J.P. Morgan, Theodore Roosevelt had to jump in, save the system in some way, and that led to the creation of the Federal Reserve. More recently, crises in Argentina, and one can cite a lot more where people, for example, in Argentina there was a law where people could not, were not able to access their bank accounts for a long time due to runs on banks. And of course, the most recent, the more recent um, 2008 crisis, uh, about which I don't need to say that much. Okay, so there's no so shortage of examples of where this trust has been lost or can be lost. Okay. As I think we are better, uh, so just more examples um, of banking crisis. How many, a lot of banks failed. South Africa, we have more examples. Let me continue to ask the question, how might the crisis develop, a banking crisis? And the short answer is in many different ways, but 
let just let's just run through a kind of template of how this might happen. Domino effect. Okay. So let's say we have a bank, typically a simplified bank balance sheet. We have the liability side, asset side. Um, on the liability side, the green part will be your capital buffer that's supposed to absorb shocks. And for some reason or another, one experiences an initial shock to the system. Whether it's the mining sector that experiences trouble and one bank um, getting into trouble, or it might be misstated financial reports, whatever the initial shock, um, let's say there's this initial shock with a failing bank, let's say I have these arrows on the asset side where we have that there's a shock that depletes the assets of the bank and there's some kind of failure or crisis. Think African bank when we go through this whole um, picture. Well, what happens, and that's, this is also what um, Mark referred to, the shareholders and subordinated creditors will, of course, take the first hit. Um, it might be that the crisis stops there, but it might also be required um, that the bank sells quickly, sells some assets to make up and to, to cover the crisis or to, to um, contain the crisis at lower prices, at stress value. So they may need to um, yeah, do fire sales and at each of these points the crisis can stop. But like in the case with African Bank, the crisis might spread further. It might be, there might be a need to recapitalize the system um, other banks might be required to step in. Um, regulators, there might be a need for bailouts. If that's not sufficient, one have further knock-on effects, and things just become worse. It's a snowball that can develop. Okay, one, um, I don't have a point, unfortunately. So one could then have a kind of trust meltdown, a meltdown in trust. Um, overreactions in our media environment, it's easy to... Um, for overreactions to happen. Information spreads quickly. It could even be that the bank is totally sound and savable, but there could be panic and overreaction. People want their money back or the bank. Uh, and of course, a, a second uh, possible knock-on effect will be now that this bank is failing and trust is um, evaporating, other banks might start to be affected. The failing assets, the assets that led to the failure of this first bank, might now have a lower value also for all other banks in the system, and the other banks might start to um, also experience problems. Um, and so it might continue. There might be other indirect shocks, ratings downgrades, etc. And from there on, if it reaches a stage, a critical stage, things might get out of hand let's say, without sufficient intervention or systems in place, from then, or from then on onwards, it's just arrows all the way. Okay, the second bank fails, the second institution fails, and this whole process just repeats itself, and we have a full-blown crisis. So, in theory, this is possible. It did happen in the past. We have a good reserve bank. We have a strong system in South Africa. But in theory, these are the fundamental pressures that will exist when a crisis is, um, when it's, uh, is happening. Okay. 
I'll briefly look at some major risks. These are not really quantifiable risks, but they are real for us, and we should take them into account. Some international risks, and we'll talk a little bit about South Africa. First, payday. Um, we have spiraling, let's, let's talk about government debt, okay? Um, debt, uh, personal debt is, is also a, an, an issue worldwide, but we are spiraling debt worldwide. If we just think about the largest economy, the, the United States, um, their debt is 118% of their whole GDP. They have more, 118% more debt than the entire size of the US economy. It's massive. And it's not getting better. If you look at this graph, that's the debt ceiling. The Congress, every three months, they have a big fight to increase the debt ceiling, and we clearly see some exponential tendency there. And President Trump on Sunday said that he might refuse the next increase in the debt ceiling, and which will lead to a government shutdown and even possible default. It's really serious. Um, but with these debt, and this, such, uh, such failures can lead to knock-on effects and systemic risk. So, I mean, uh, debt within, uh, between, uh, to a country cannot really be enforced. Uh, imagine America that lent or that, that borrowed a lot of money from China. Um, can China force America to pay it back? Okay, can they? What will happen if China is angry? There's a trade war. They say, we want our money back. Because America doesn't pay back its loans. America, when the interest and capital becomes due, it just borrows more. That's why the debt ceiling is increasing. But no, imagine President Trump coming on national television and saying, um, my fellow Americans, um, President Z just phoned me. He's a nice guy. Um, but they want their money back. And I think we should give their money back. We should maybe stop um, the whole, this whole idea about the wall. Let's put it on hold. Let's reverse the, the, the tax cuts. Let's, um, let's um, forget about all these infrastructure plans that I had before um, because the Chinese want their money back. Guys, that will not happen. That will not happen. So this, this is a real risk. That's only America. Worldwide, we had the Greece crisis. Things did not get better there as well. 108% of um, debt to GDP ratio, nearly double um, the size of the Greek uh, economy. Um, that is how much their debt is. So that is something that's serious. Payday is looming. Question is, when will that happen? Mark referred to this. I'll, I'll then be very brief about this. There's the potential for conflict, it's systemic. And we talk here about soft conflicts also, um, trade wars between currently China and America, also the EU, but also hard conflicts. It's easier today, it's difficult to quantify, but it seems that the likelihood for a miscalculation or a misinterpretation between strong men, that's currently populists, um, that the risk is higher for a major escalation and conflict um, into real war, which is, of course, catastrophic. Third internationally re uh, related point, with all the benefits of the tech revolution, 
we do have increased risks of fraud, money laundering, which makes up a major percentage, up to 30% of all transactions. We have major changes in the way that money works and will work in the, uh, in the future that may lead to disruptions. And yes, technology is changing the world as we know it. We will live longer, things will change, there will be automation and a painful transition process um, toward maybe a better situation where the robots work for us and we sit back and enjoy our lives. Okay. Guys, closer to, uh, to, to, to home. In South Africa, we have, some, we have the well-publicized uh, stuff, um, corruption. We inherited uh, a really terrible situation from the previous government, and it is still hanging over our heads. We have massive debt from the state-owned enterprises, and the Reserve Bank recently said they are usually very contained and careful to make statements. But they recently said that the state the, the, the SOEs pose a major risk to financial stability in South Africa. That is really serious for the Reserve Bank to say. So the question is whether we are still in a position to contain this and save this. And um, currently the, the hopes of most um, in the financial sector is in the Ramaphosa government. We will have to see if that realizes. Furthermore, we saw within a period of five years two bank failures in South Africa, which is quite high in terms of frequency. Um, it should be a very rare event. So that is something that's very concerning. And statements from the Reserve Bank makes it clear that the appetite from the Reserve Bank side to step in and save banks is diminishing. They don't want to. There might be a scenario where at some point the Reserve Bank says, it's your problem, let it go. And that might become systemic. Okay. And guys, then an important factor, Mark, um, on the social, socioeconomic front. And here I want just to focus, this is my last um, shooting from the hip slide. We have in South Africa a major problem, poverty. 55% or more of our population are extremely poor. You cannot afford anything else than basic needs. 25% of our population are under the breadline, which means that you cannot buy enough food to sustain a minimal healthy body. 25%, one in four. It is extreme in our country. I tried to, to get a picture there on the one side, an informal settlement and let's say a more affluent area on the, on the right hand side. And before I step off this topic and go into the modeling, just imagine that you lived in that part. You're one of those 25%. There's no hope. You can be as smart as you want and as innovative as you want. It's impossible to get out of there. You cannot afford a set of clothes to go to a, a job interview. You cannot, um, you don't know about the job interview. You don't have access to anything, information. Guys, if I was there, this would be my man. This would be my man. I would vote for this guy. And we should take note of this. Maybe you could differ with me. You can ask me in question time. But don't come to me with an argument and say, well, if this guy takes over and starts to 
hand out land that it will destroy the economy. For me, there is no economy. It is already destroyed. We should take note of the fact if something is not done about poverty, um, we should make peace with the fact that we will need to live with radicalism, populism, and those uncertainties. Okay, so that is on the South African front. Good. Let's get closer to back to act more actuarial stuff. The risks that we're looking at. Let me just see. Some of these risks, some of these risks are open to quantification. Economic variables, macroeconomic, financial infrastructure, how the system interacts and are, um, set, uh, is set up. That is open to some modeling and quantification. The impact of regulatory interventions and um, different regimes. One could maybe also model those impacts. But one tough one is political kind of risks. And that creates, with us as um, a research group, uncertainty about how viable it is to model systemic risk. Is it possible at all to um, have any predictability? Good. So, let's talk about the modeling and things that we tried, and I'll show you one case where we had some level of success. When you model um, from an academic point of view, you must first decide, and I think all of you have it in your own context, what to model and what not to model. We are doing the same as being done currently by regulators um, in stress testing and so on. We are modeling, let's think of this little um, sand waves that we have here in, in, in a desert. Even under some extreme circumstances of wind and some disruptions of those bushes, one will be able to model this um, formations of the sand waves to some extent. Even though this, the, the grains of sand do, do not have any intention of their own, like let us say uh, people in an economy, one can even uh, in this case um, see some regularities. But of course we cannot model a sandstorm, we cannot model how things will look like after a sandstorm. So there is a requirement of conditional stability. We don't model, don't try at this stage to model wars, um, financial, uh, political earthquakes. So that's currently a little bit out of the scope, but important as we see. Also, should your model include the lender of last resort or exclude it? Like an insurance product, if you want to price an insurance uh, uh, product, you exclude the sum insured because you want to calculate what the sum insured is. If you include the lender of last resort, the, the entity that provides the insurance to the banking industry, you distort it so much that you don't see the real risks fundamentally in the system. So there's an argument in some modeling to exclude the lender of last resort, which we are doing with um, uh, some of our, uh, one of our research projects. Sinadine uh, is here today. Um, but of course, there's a strong argument, and that's also being done to um, also model a more real-world situation and try to simulate when you include the lender of last resort. Next question, do we, need, do we model the actual shocks or how shocks will propagate? The actual shocks, tough to model. It um, includes those political risk elements and so on. Very tough to model. One can maybe look at the extremes only, but 
there is an argument to say, okay, we don't know exactly what the shock will be, but which kind of networks and uh, infrastructure will be more robust um, given a certain shock? That's what we are currently also looking at. Okay, then some more questions. What is a risk appetite? Well, do we live in a dispensation where the government, the, the government might say, like we might now start seeing in America, um, if someone fails, if a bank fails, it's their problem. Let it fail and let it go and let it, let it run its course. We, we are not going to pay, let, make taxpayers pay for bad decisions. Or will the bank step in and save, try to keep the system stable? Or will they say, let's let the first few fall and stop? So there is the question about what is the risk appetite of the, um, let's say, the governing regime of the day. Okay. What we are aiming at, wouldn't it be nice to have a model where we, for example, um, here we see the dark, darkly shaded areas, we have a crisis period, and we are able on the vertical axis to see how the probability of a crisis increases before it happens. And we were indeed, indeed able to build something of, of this kind and are working on even improving that, but it seems that this might be possible to some extent, um, at least for some European countries, we are, we are going to do this for other cases as well. So early warning systems, if maybe two or three years before a crisis happens, maybe you can see that the temperature is going up and it might make sense, it might just be a flag to a central bank to start doing something about it. Okay. Guys, this is a complex problem. I said I don't pretend to be able to model all these complexities. I'm not going to stand still here a lot. So many levels of and layers of complexity. The, in, the individual entities in the system, they are interacting. Each of these dots might be a bank or financial entity. Already difficult to, to handle on its own. I think all of you who work in banking know that your own um, organization is already complex. These entities interact, so it, they, they, they are various layers of complexity. And you have different types of uh, institutions that interact in a certain way. Currently, most of the research and most of the um, focus of regulators are on the banks only, but there are higher level interactions between banks, the shadow banking sector, insurers, and who knows what else. Okay, and yes, the macro environment, to fully understand how things will develop, one needs to understand what's happening in the wider economical uh, environment. Shocks to the system, and another level of complexity is to understand how this thing might evolve over time. So, not a simple question, and um, what we are trying to do is to attack this piece by piece. Okay, and following a few approaches. I'll run quickly through this. Banking networks, this is an area of research that we latched on that's existing um, across the literature. We looked at different network, together with um, Nadine that's here in, as part of her PhD, at the robustness of certain types of network that could help regulators to decide or to give them an idea of what if this system and to determine what the robustness of the system is. If you destroy one of these nodes, um, 
they might be interlinked in some way, directly or indirectly, what will be the effect on the rest of the system when you remove one of the nodes or you shock the system? Okay, so that is one possible approach. And an extension of this approach, this is one of my borrowed pictures, this is not our own picture. Of course, when you want to look at other sectors like shadow banks and um, insurers, we need a network of networks where you might have a network of banks and other and connections to other networks. We already made some progress on this on an, analytic, uh, an analytical level to try to include this into a model. And um, that's also what, we want, want, what one will need when trying to understand the networks. Okay, Sikorne is here, so it's really his study. Stress testing is another approach um, in a systemic, well, an important pillar when determining systemic risks. Um, reserve banks have serious questions, especially in the developing world, about how to conduct, conduct reliable stress tests that make sense. Bottom up, top down models cannot go too, too deep into that. Stress testing is also something that we are currently looking into, working also with our own reserve bank to understand that better. Macroeconomic models. Um, current economic models do not make provision for a detailed financial sector. Um, in this research, we work uh, with the University of Oxford, and they developed a model for the UK and some other countries, and we are developing one for South Africa. This one includes the central bank and some uh, regulatory uh, um, kind of uh, interventions. So a macro model is essential. This one is cut to the bone because it's really complex, so one tries to capture the most um, essential parts. Okay. Credit ratings, not going to say that much about that. Gives one good clues about how risk and the risk of um, liabilities are being assessed. And then the last, well, this is a more overarching theme, about early warning systems. Um, Richard, please indicate to me if my time, my time is up. I, I did start a bit late because I want to show a little bit more detail about this. Okay. Early warning systems. So how possible is it and how re realistic is it to identify increased risk of banking crisis before it occurs? Okay. And what can be done in this respect? And the whole idea here was inspired by, by pirates, okay? There's the pirates in the Gulf of Aden, okay? Caribbean maybe next. But in the Gulf of Aden, one is able to observe vessels. We have a, there is a piracy problem there through satellites. Some start off in the morning, they move out, they stand still a while, they move a little bit, stand still a while, return. That's most likely a fishing boat. Some vessels tend to move through the area. That's most likely a cargo ship, something like that. And you have different possibilities. And one, as you observe, your model will be able to tell you with increasing likelihood, this will be a fishing boat. Don't worry about this one. But some will have kind of behavior where they initialize, um, drift. There's a sudden movement, attack, and the, the ship is either abandoned or it's returned, behavior does, that does not fit in with a fishing boat, uh, uh, 
trading ship, etc. And that, is, that, that enables the people that need to monitor this to focus on those cases to maybe identify pirates. And the point is, we did this with, with engineers. Okay, I don't know really much about pirates. Um, but we made the link and say, can we use this kind of modeling, um, determining the probability of something being in a certain state, to determine if we can model um, whether the economy, by observing variables, is in a good or a bad state. Okay, early warning systems, it's nothing new. There are so-called traditional models. They are not able really to model the, the dynamics over time. And what we thought, and why do you want to model dynamics? Um, if you just look at these figures, what is the probability of getting a square? So if you just look at this sample, it's two, two over eight, okay? It's a quarter. But of course, if you add dynamics from, let us say, from left to right, probability of a, that the next one will be a square is significantly higher. So the model that we trained um, concentrated on learning behavior over time and trying to see what will happen next. So that's we did through a Bayesian, a dynamic Bayesian network. I think my time is up, five minutes. Thank you. Is that excluding questions? Okay. Um, let me gloss over this quickly. So guys, um, the linear, uh, the idea is that you are able only to observe the tip of the iceberg, okay? We only see some annual or quarterly information. Uh, we don't see what is really happening under the surface. And based on those observations, you try to make, in, uh, to infer um, what is the true picture, what happens under the surface plus the part above the surface. And in this model, we added an extra layer, the state, the S, there on top, which is either a switching state, that which could be, let us say, crisis, or tranquil. Okay. So guys, we work with a data set, 11 European countries, a whole range of economic variables, and we used a standard list of banking crises. Banking crises are scarce, so not a lot of banking crisis that, crisis that happened, and that's part of the difficulty of this kind of analysis. And what we found, oh, I already showed this one. What we found is we, should, we, we compared different models with each other. The, the two traditional ones, signal extraction and the logic model, they had really bad accuracy on average um, to identify and to predict a crisis. The one we developed, the next two are quite standard models that we compared ours against. The SLDS, the, the, the Bayesian network is the, the lower one, which, well, had 67% accuracy in predicting um, a crisis um, within a period of three years before the crisis occurred. We obtained at least a significant improvement on the traditional models. 67 is not fireworks but at least we see there is a chance to really increase the predictability and there is room for going deeper into this to try to uh, improve this. Okay, but what is a little bit better about the model that we developed was that if we look at the box whisker plots, those are the, uh, the, mo the models that we considered. You want here, we looked at the variation of the, the predicted values and accuracies for different countries. 
you want a box that's small and high, high accuracy, the vertical axis is the accuracy level. Um, so we saw that our model is really robust, um, average on 67%, but it's contained within quite a small box, which is really encouraging in terms of being able to, with some certainty, and a very limited, very limited data set to be able to detect crises much better than traditional models. And I think with better data and deeper analysis, one will be able to increase that significantly. Okay, do I have one minute left? Future plans. We should connect the pieces of the puzzle. We see a lot of approaches, macro models, and then networks. Next plans are to build a macro model that involves different approaches um, all into one. Develop risks, uh, risk indices or ratings that could even be serve as benchmarks for credit ratings. We are currently busy with that. And generally, we, we want to develop a research capability around systemic risk and, let um, us say, uh, system-wide risks that's um, leading in South Africa and in Africa in general. So we are collaborating, and we want to col collaborate more with regulators, industry. We are supported by APSA, but APSA is nice in the sense that they want to um, push actuarial research research and this kind of research forward, so we are open to collaborate on a very wide um, front, and we see that there might be a significant opportunity, both in terms of research and for Africa, um, advising central banks and financial players in Africa to, um, to consider these kind of modeling when they devise their new regulations, which is a major opportunity because for many African countries, they are starting, they are starting from scratch, and one can influence that in a significant way. Okay, thank you very much. That's my story. Thank you, Conrad. That was, that was great. Um, we don't have much time, but is, are there any questions from the floor? Nothing. I suppose one question from me then. Um, I mean, this, this is fantastic. I suppose my question is just, what is the actual output of it? So, so kind of, if, if I have to think it through, is it you kind of saying, hey, kind of, we're in a pre-crisis period, watch out for it, for it yeah. phoning Mark and saying, hey, man, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a crisis coming. Um, yes. And kind of, is that the output? And what's the risk you run of becoming kind of a doomsayer in a way? And kind of, how do you balance that out? Yeah, so the aims of this is currently to, if one has an early warning system that works pretty um, well and, it's, and is reliable, it can just be another addition to the catalog of methods that reserve banks, the regulator is already using, just be a flag, it might not be conclusive, but it might, might narrow down, like in the pirate case, narrow down the range of issues that the bank might need to look at, so it might help in that respect. Um, in other research, the network research, we would like to be in a position to test uh, to put the regulator in a position to test different structures which they might be able to incentivize and see how that becomes uh, more robust to shocks and even to, um, to, to improve the system. And tough question is, yes, cost versus benefit of regulation. So regulation might make it safe. You can keep the whole thing at zero and it's safe. But um, yes. Safety versus benefit to the system and growth, etc., is something we need to consider also in future. 
Thank you very much.